It's great to be with you for the final week of this series, and just as we've done each week, just want to sort of summarize where we've come from, but very quickly, because it'll be familiar to many. But if you are new, or you've just sort of stumbled in by mistake, or if you're, you're here for the first time, or you've missed a few, really, we've been, this is week seven of seven, and week one, we really concluded with, we can know things. And week two, we said, God is plausible. And week three, therefore, miracles are plausible. Week four, What's wrong with the world is evil and death, or sin and death. Week five, therefore, what we need is forgiveness, transformation, and resurrection for the body and the world. And then week six, Jesus did actually rise from the dead bodily. And that's the key week, really, because if that's true, then a lot of the questions we raised in series in weeks one to five are given an emphatic yes. Is there an answer? Can something be done about this? Yes. Jesus is alive. And so what we do week seven is like the mopping up. We have to say, well, so what? If Jesus is alive, so what? And what I found fascinating listening to these videos, which again, the answers were so helpful and so representative of our community and our culture. But for many of the people there, the existence of God wouldn't really make very much difference, either because they already believe in God or because they say, if I did believe in God, the sort of God I would believe in would be distant. It might be, if you picture, you know, the big God with the white beard who creates a world, plonks it there, and goes off and does something else. And what's interesting, because the question we asked there was, if God exists, what difference, so what? And actually, what about if you ask the question instead, if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? Well, if, if we are dealing with a God who raised Jesus from the dead, suddenly the, oh, no, 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 that wouldn't make any difference option is off the table. You can't say that a God who rose Jesus from the dead would be uninvolved with creation. In fact, as soon as you say, I believe in a God who rose Jesus from the dead, that sort of God, you are acknowledging the world is a totally different sort of place than the kind of world in which he didn't. You are acknowledging, for instance, that God is actively involved in his creation. You are acknowledging that God is committed to restoring what's broken about it. As soon as you say God raised Jesus from the dead, you are acknowledging that God is actively involved in the story of the nation of Israel and particularly in this one individual, Jesus of Nazareth. You are saying that God has expressed himself or revealed himself in and through that moment. And that's a very different sort of world. So you can say, oh, if there's a God who created the world, that doesn't get you very far. We said that early on in the series, actually. Believing in God, that's fine. The Bible says that. You can believe in God. Devil believes in God, doesn't get you anywhere. What matters is which God? What's that God like? Is he the sort of God who has raised Jesus from the dead or not? And if the answer is yes, everything changes. And the so what is absolutely enormous for our view of the Bible, for our view of God himself, for our view of who we are and what we are on the earth to do, and so on. And I want, in order to explain why I'm saying that, I want us to read a, a, the same passage as it happens that we read last week that Steve read last week, from Romans 1, 1 to 7. Um, I didn't know that when I wrote the talk, but actually it's wonderful because you get to hear it twice and get, it, get the truth out of it and see why the so what of the resurrection is so large. And this is the Apostle Paul who is probably, he's really the first person to wrestle with the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for people who aren't Jews. Most of them in this room are probably not Jews. I'm not. And so the first person to say, right, so what? Jesus is risen, so what? For people who aren't Jews was this guy. And this is how he begins his greatest letter, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long sentence and there's a lot in it. But the dramatic impact of the resurrection of Jesus for everything shines through every clause, if you will. As you read through it, you are finding kind of line after line of things Paul is saying that are only true because of the resurrection, or that we only know to be true because of the resurrection. And we're going to see the dramatic impact of the empty tomb and the risen Jesus for all kinds of areas in a number of interlocking ways as we go through this in a bit more detail. But as a way of introducing it, I want us to look at a short video for a moment. And this is a video I really like because it it sort of serves, you'll see why as you get to the end of it, serves as a parable for the way the resurrection functions for Paul and should function for Christians. I just think it's wonderful as a, a sort of little analogy for how the resurrection works for those of us who are Christians and for Paul himself. So if we just play the video and then you'll see why that's true. Oh, say can you see by the dawn and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air Good, right? And I didn't see it coming. And some of you were probably with me, some maybe you know, sharper, and you saw it coming away, away. I was, I was very dim. I didn't get it until the very last second. And I love that video as a parable for the way the resurrection functions for Paul. Because the resurrection for Paul is the moment when the story gets turned the right way up. And you realize, I've been looking at this world upside down all this time. And these blurs and splodges, what on earth is going on there? This little thing here and a shadow there and a blob there and a squiggle here. I can't make sense of it. And then suddenly, whoom, the world is the right way up. And you think, ah, that now makes sense of all of these other things I couldn't see. So you, and it's like that, reading through the Bible. 
And looking at human history, you, you have these shadowy, squiggly, odd, blurry images. You have this garden with these kind of naked people and a snake. And then you go, and this sort of scene seems to fade, and then you have a big flood, and then it seems to, seems, scene seems to fade, and you have this old man going on a walk from modern-day Iraq into Israel. And you think, what's going on here? And then you see this group of slaves being led out of slavery and going through a river and entering a land, which they then make a mess of. And then you see a king unite them all, and everyone, you think it's going to work, and then the king's grandson causes the whole thing to disintegrate, and you think, what was that about? And it just twin- sprinkles off again. And then another image emerges as this nation rise and fall and rise and fall, and then eventually they get marched across the desert into exile in another country for 70 years. And then they get marched back again, you think, maybe this is what all the story's about. But no, because they rebuild a temple, but that doesn't answer the problem and then they build walls and then the walls crumble and they build them again and that doesn't answer the problem and then it blurs out again and then you see a teenage mum screaming as she's in labor for a baby who then gets born in a feeding trough and people come and give him gifts and then that fades into and then that little boy grows up a little bit and says some puzzling things and he grows up to adulthood and he goes and walks into a river and gets wet and comes out the other side and then meets people and confronts people and a lot of people love him and say he feeds us and then he heals people but then people hate him as well and they try and kill him and then he walks into the city in which the whole world is centered from his point of view and then he walks and you think here it comes and he rides in on a donkey and then gets off and walks into a temple and trashes the place and then walks out again and six days later they grab hold of him arrest him in the middle of the night and then they nail him to a piece of wood and string him up naked and the sky goes black and everything goes silent and you look at the story and you think what in heaven's name is happening this this picture this painting that the painter is creating does not make sense i don't understand why we're listening to this song and watching the painting unfold what is the creator what is the painter supposed to be doing and then just as the things are beginning to dawn is beginning to break on the sunday morning you begin to get an idea of what's going on And two angels appear, and they say, do not fear, he's risen to life, and his corpse is not here. And then the painter goes, whoom, and then you look at it, and he says, and the cross-spangled banner forever shall save For the king who sets men free has defeated the grave. Everybody goes, whoa! And the world turns the right way up. And you think, that's what the painting was about. That's now suddenly the naked people in the garden and the old man on the walk and the slaves heading through the river. It all makes sense. But without that resurrection moment, the painting's upside down. And for Paul, the resurrection is the key. It's the moment when everything flips, and it should be for you. Whether you're a Christian or not, the resurrection of Jesus is an event that, were it true, turns the world the right way up. It changes our view of everything. It changes our view of who God is, of what the Bible is, of who you are, of what you're here for, and your purpose. So we're going to go through that passage in just a bit more detail and see Four of the ways in which that's true. Four of the things that are changed dramatically if the resurrection is true, according to Paul. So first of all, in verse 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The resurrection, if true, changes your view of the Bible. It does. It changes the view of the Bible because it means that the God who spoke through it can be trusted to keep his promises. 
That's, what, that's Paul's logic here. Before he even says the word resurrection, he is pivoting off it to affirm something about Scripture. He's saying God in the scriptures, had promised that he was going to do something like this. We didn't know quite what, but we knew it was coming, and the resurrection vindicates his words. So when he speaks, we know it's true. So we can go back and say, yeah, this was promised in the prophets. This was promised in the scriptures. Without the resurrection, the Bible is a story of a group of people who hoped for something wonderful to happen, and it didn't. Well, that on its own is not something that people build their lives on. But if the word of God is something that God promised would happen, and then it did, just like he said, that changes everything. That means you say, this story is the story of the world. It's not just one of many different ways of looking at things. This is the real story. The analogy I use in the book is a, that of when the, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, there were two rival political stories in the world, really. There was communism. Half the world, you know, large percentage of the world lived under communist governments, and there was capitalism. The Berlin Wall coming down didn't suddenly prove one was true, but what it did was to say this story looks much more convincing all of a sudden than that one. That's what the resurrection does for the scriptures. It says actually this narrative, this story of the world, suddenly looks very true because the God who speaks in it has been vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead. God's promises have been proved to be true. Even when you don't understand. Even when you're waiting for hundreds of years going, what is going on? Even when the Son of God has died and the skies turn black. You know that God keeps his promises. That's what it tells you. So the resurrection changes your view of the scriptures. It also changes your view of God. Verses 3 to 4. So have a look at the next one. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection changes our view of who God is and what he is like. We've been saying a lot in this series, God, if he, she, or they exist, and well, we don't really know what that God is like if. You don't know what God is like from the fact that there is a world. You just know God is powerful. You don't know that God is good. You don't know that God is like this. But if the resurrection is true, suddenly you know two things about God you did not know before. One of them is, as we're going to see here, that in the person of Jesus, humanity and divinity, or godness and humanness, have come together in one person. And the second thing you know is that that God, according to this text, it points forward to the idea that he is three in one as well. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And I say, what? In the introductory sentence of a letter like this, don't be ridiculous. I'll show you. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, that means as a human being, you have got physical ancestry, right? You know who his parents were and who their parents were, and all the way back to King David. He was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. So you've got his son of God, son of man. You've got the humanity of Jesus and a, a hint, I admit it's not proof, but a hint at the divinity of Jesus expressed in that sentence. You have got Jesus as human and divine being pointed to in this very verse. And that's because you know now that the human world and the divine world have somehow come together in this man. And Paul is saying, if that's true, look at the difference it makes for your vision of God. Look at the difference it makes if God is no longer a painter who is at a distance, but a, a God who has actually stepped inside his own painting to turn it the right way up. That's a different kind of God. We not only know that, he's, that Jesus, if you like, in that sense is human and divine, but you also know that God is three in one. Now, again, you might think that's a stretch. I don't think it is. Verse 4, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. The Trinity's right in there, right? The Son of God according to the Spirit. And some of us probably didn't even notice it, but he's right in there because Paul, again, is already thinking, this repaints God. This event shows me that the kind of God that Israel worships and the kind of God that the Bible reveals is actually needs to be understood in a three-in-one way as Father, Son, and Spirit together. The resurrection says God is like this. He's like this man. You want to know what God is like? Big beard, round up the world, off we go. No, no, no. This God stepped into his own painting. He steps into creation to turn it the right way up. And that means that you can read through the Jesus story and say, oh, that's the nature of the creator of the universe. This God, God is like a man. God, not just God is like a man. God is a man who walks and teaches and heals the sick and confronts hypocrites and has meals with people he probably shouldn't, eats with outcasts and feeds the poor and cries at funerals and creates abundant wine at weddings and silences storms. That's what God is like. So you look at him and you say, oh, this has completely, for us at least who are not Jews, that has completely changed our understanding of who God was. You look at some people and you hear them describe the kind of God they believe in and you think, it's no wonder you behave the way you do with that vision of a God, but if your vision of God is like this man, this Jesus, this, the God who is able to go to the wedding and the funeral and cry and rejoice along with everybody else and still remain without sin, you are able to look at him and say, if God's like that, that changes the world. What a hope to have a God who is like Jesus. The resurrection changes the way we look at the whole painting. It turns things the right way up and it changes your view of the Bible and your view of God. It also changes your view of you. Changes your view of your purpose. Verses 5 and 6. Look at this. Through whom, that says in through him, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes our view of our purpose. We are now a group of people called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. As in, we are called to obey God, to trust God, to do things for the glory of God, for the sake of his name, and to be an international, global, diverse community among all the nations. That's, our purpose has changed. Because a king is alive, and we've been sent out as emissaries or ambassadors to announce to the world that the king they thought was in charge has now been taken down. And the new king is here. And that changes the way that they should think about him, themselves, and what they do with their lives. And you and me are part of that. That's what the church of God, that's Paul's theology of the church in a sentence in a way. Called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And you might have noticed that with the exception of Christianity, all religious movements are still strongest in the area where they began. You may have noticed that. Hinduism has always been centered in India. Islam has always been centered in the Middle East and around Saudi Arabia. Mormonism has always been centered in North America. Buddhism's always been Judaism. They're all centered where they always have been, except Christianity. It's centered in Jerusalem. No, it's not. It's moved up to Antioch. No, it's not. It's down Alexandria. No, it's not. It's moved across to Rome. Oh, now it's in Constantinople. Oh, back, now it's back in Rome again. Oh, it's moved up into Western Europe. What's happened? Oh, it's gone to North America. Oh, now it's gone to Sub-Saharan Africa. Now it's over in Latin America. Now it's in Korea. What on earth is going on with this faith? Every time I think I've figured it out, it moves somewhere else. What's the reason? Because we've been called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And that makes a total, that changes the way you think who you are and what you're here for. So for Paul, that meant he gave his life to traveling to preach Christ everywhere. 
And the same is true for the people who believed his message. And we collectively still do that. That's part of what we have been called to do. So it changes your view of your purpose. And finally, it actually changes your view of your identity as well. Verse 7, look at this. This is just this, I love the way the throwaway manner in which Paul describes Christians. He's never met them, by the way. Most of the church, he doesn't know them. He knows a few, but he doesn't know most. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes our view of our identity. The resurrection means that you can write to people you've never met and tell them with absolute certainty that they are loved by God and called to be saints and that the grace and peace of God are with them. You know that. Paul doesn't have to look at the church and go, ah, Rome, now. Some of those Christians will be loved by God. Some of them won't be loved so much. Some of those Christians will be called to be holy and saints. Some of them won't be. He doesn't do that. He knows if you're in Christ, Christ is loved by God, therefore you are loved by God. End of conversation. If you're in Christ, Christ is holy, you are holy as well. So we don't divide the church into saints who have halos in the pictures and the rest of the church who are like plebs walking around looking like this. You don't do that because every Christian has a big halo. And the reason is because all Christians are in Christ and Christ has the biggest halo that there is. And so if you're in him, you know you're a saint. You know you are a holy one. You know whether you live like it or not, whether you like it or not, you have been sanctified by Christ. You know that. You know you have been loved by God just for being a Christian. Not for what you did. Because you're in Christ. You are loved by God. You're not someone that God thinks treats as an enemy or a nuisance or somebody that you walked past in the corridor once and he went hello but you kind of got the feeling he didn't remember your name. That's not how you stand to God. You are loved by God. You're treated with the affection of a child simply because you're in Jesus Christ. You're recipients of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't you? You have been, what a wonderful blessing. Nowadays we write, dear so-and-so. In his day, you'd say, he, he was Christianizing a common greeting, saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way of greeting people. Yeah? May the generosity and reconciliation of God the Father and Jesus his Son always be yours. What a great way of saying hello to somebody. And because... Because of that, because of these things being true of us, one of the things we're going to do towards the final few minutes of this meeting is we're going to break bread together. And Christians have done that ever since the beginning, partly as a way of saying one to the other, actually, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God has been gracious to you, brother, sister. God has been gracious. He has acted in a way that gives you a free gift you didn't deserve, and he's brought peace to your life. He's brought shalom. He's brought wholeness. He's brought abundance. Even though you are living like Israel was in slavery and like we were between the Old and New Testaments, questioning with lots of doubts and lots of suffering, we are living in that tension, waiting. But in the meantime, we know that what God has done in Christ provides abundant grace and peace to us even when storms are raging. We know that. So we come to the table or we pass it along the rows as a way of expressing. This is a sign, a tangible, physical thing you can smell and eat and see and touch as a way of appropriating or taking hold for yourself of the grace and peace of God that have been made for you in Jesus. So that's why we're going to do that in just a few moments. So for Paul, and when you think about it, he's got to be right about this, I think. A world in which Jesus is alive is a very different sort of world to a world in which he's still dead. It is a world in which 
Everything is now the right way up, waiting for the day when all things are made new. But we can see where the story's going. We can understand what the squiggles all mean. The so what is enormous. It changes our view of Scripture. It changes our view of God. It says God is like Jesus. It changes our view of our purpose and our identity. If Jesus is alive, then God conquers and evil loses. You remember all the people on the video who were saying in week four, what's wrong with the world is this, 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 and this. And I kind of don't really know what the solution would be. And then Jesus steps in and says, I know what the solution is. And if I am alive, then can you see that the problems you correctly identified have actually met their match? Can you see that? The world in which Jesus is alive is a world in which death loses, evil loses. It's crushed. And Jesus wins. And love wins. And hope conquers. And God destroys all the powers of evil and unites all things to himself. Can you see that that would be true if Jesus was alive? The so what is unthinkably huge. And I'd invite you to enter that world if you haven't yet. If you, to join us. To, when we, in a few moments, we're going to use a creed, which is a, like an ancient declaration of faith that Christians use. And have, this is really the way that Christians have answered the question, so what, for 1,800 years. And you may say that, you may actually declare it for the first time this morning. You may come to the table for the first time or part, take hold of the bread and the wine for the first time this morning as a way of saying, actually, yes, if Jesus is alive, this changes everything. But before we do that, because we've done this each week, we're just going to take a few questions just to help if there's anything left. And then, as I say, at the end of that, the band will come out and we'll, we'll say the creed and then t- take communion. So have we got any questions? We have three questions. Okay, let's see. If God, why Satan? Nice. I see what you did there as well. That's a good question. Um, why, why did God create or allow Satan? In some ways, this is a, another way of saying if God, why evil, but it's personalized. So I think the, Bible's, the Bible doesn't actually answer the question. The Bible never says, here's why Satan exists and what God was thinking at the time. Uh, and that's often true with our biggest questions in Scripture. Mystery is left where we want certainty. I think what we can say, though, is that Satan is a spiritual being. So a lot of people in London don't or claim not to believe in spiritual beings. Some people genuinely don't. And they don't believe that there are angels or demons. Christians, that's not an option for us. Christians, there are angels and there are demons. There are spiritual beings who do not have bodies. And they have choices like we do, but they don't have physical form. And that's the case for angels. And I think the best Christian reflection on the person of Satan is that he is a fallen angel who had a choice, that God created angelic beings with a view to worshiping him and enjoying him and created a physical universe. And that some of those angelic beings fell. And Satan, Hasatan just in Hebrew just means the accuser. So he became, if you like, the, the key representative of accusation and destruction in the heavenly courts and was cast out of heaven for that, for that reason. I think that's what Satan in that sense is created in, the same, in some ways for the same reason as you were created, which is as somebody who could worship God but chose not to. And as, as such, I think like two weeks back we looked at the problem with the world and said... Are we the baddies? You know, when you read the story of the Bible, you don't go, oh, it's all his guy, his fault. The guy with the horns and the pitchfork, nothing to do with me. And actually, the Bible doesn't let you do that. It said, you, in a sense, have done the same thing he did, and so have I, which is to turn our back on God and honor ourselves. The only difference being that God has made a way to redeem human beings by becoming human in Jesus. So that's a, a short answer. There's a, obviously tomes written about it. Next one. You said that Jesus has repainted our view of God. Why did he need to do that? Why does the God of the Old Testament seem to be different from the God of the New Testament? 
So I'll answer the second one first because I think it's probably more, and some of that's what the first one is pointing to, I think. Um, so I think the God of the Old Testament, can, some people have done that, they've read the Old, Old and New Testaments and they've said, hey, the expectations on the people of God are quite different. And, as, and in a sense, they are saying God must be different because the things that the people of God are told to do are different, which is true. They are. But not because God has changed, but because something has happened through Jesus. That means that people who are not Jews on a large scale are now welcomed into the people of God. And that is not, that's because rather than sometimes we think, well, that's, the Bible is plan A, and that didn't really work out, and then it's plan B. It's more like act one, act two. The continuation of the same story, but because there are now lots of non-Jews or Gentiles in God's people, like me and like many of us, the expectations and ethical requirements for people change to reflect that fact. I think that, in that sense, that does change. What I don't think changes is the character of God behind it. So actually, some, often when people say this, they, they, I think they probably mean something like, God seems angry in the Old Testament and loving, loving and fluffy in the New. And I think actually what you have instead is a God who is fundamentally loving throughout and angry at all sin throughout and not at all fluffy and so you read the old testament you have a god who is compassionate and merciful slow to anger and abounding and rich in love and who then is very angry when things come in to pollute his creation and destroy people made in his image and then in the new testament you have a god who is compassionate and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and rich in love and gets angry when people come in to destroy his people or his creation. You find that in the person of Jesus. Saying, get behind me, Satan. Saying, you snakes, you vipers, who will escape? How will you escape being sentenced to hell? He confronts arrogance and pride and greed and idolatry and sin whenever he sees it, actually. Or not whenever he sees it, but often when he sees it. And he does that because when you love somebody, you are angry about things that destroy them. If I didn't express anger when my, if my wife was violated, I would not, in doing that, show how much I loved her. I'd show how little I loved her, wouldn't I? Anger is the proper response to things that you love being violated, and that's the way God has always treated sin. And in that sense, I don't think Jesus repaints our view of God by changing it. I think what he does, if you like, is to come in person and put flesh where there was only word. And we used to have words about God and we used to have the occasional image or appearance of God in angelic form or on a mountain or in a law. But then when he came in person, he said, this is what God looks like. This is, you can, like the writer of 1 John, you know, we, we, we've seen and we've heard and we've touched with our hands. That's what God is like. And we're now going to tell you about him, the word of life. I think that's the sense in which I mean Jesus repaints God. He fully reveals and puts flesh on the bones, if you like. Okay, so we're going to uh, close it down there. What I'd love to do is just to conclude, if we can, but with this creed, and to this is, it's a way, as I say, in which Christians have expressed their conviction about the so what of the resurrection. Could we stand to our feet? I think there'll be some here who have used this before in worship, some who won't have, but don't worry, it's all going to appear up on the screen. But if you believe in Jesus, this is a good declaration of the so what of Christianity, and I'll, I'll lead it, and then Steve will lead us through into the final bit of the meeting. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, 
and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.